0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou the Academy's Deputy Director and the producer of this series, taking you backstage to meet the guests we host in our programme of talks and debates here in London. Earlier this year, the philanthropist and advocate Melinda Gates joined the journalist Hannah McInnes to make an impassioned appeal for gender equality across the globe and tell us the lessons she's learned from her work and travels.
2: Now, please welcome to the stage Hannah McInnes and Melinda Gates. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Um, I'm delighted to see so many of you here. As Daisy said, as you might feel from the slight squeeze, it's a sellout, um, sold out, I think, in record time. So, well done for getting your hands on such a coveted ticket. I'm thrilled to see that there are quite a few men in the audience too, so thank you very much, particularly for coming. We need you on board with this as well, as you've heard from the video. I'm delighted to welcome Melinda Gates here this evening on behalf of the How-To Academy. Uh, It's a real honour to have this unique chance to spend an hour hearing about her extraordinary work as a philanthropist, a businesswoman, and a global advocate for women and girls. She is, of course, the co chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which means that she is responsible for the direction and for deciding the priorities of the world's leading um, philanthropic organization. She's also the founder of Pivotal Ventures, which is dedicated to improving social progress for women and for families in the US. She's the mother of three children, um, and of course, she's the author as you now know, of this book, The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. And that's really the inspiration for our talk together this evening. The book is about, and this evening will also be about, um, how what Melinda has learnt from her explorations looking at the world over the last 20 years on a mission to save really those with the most urgent of needs. And of course, from what she's learned from these inspirational women, as usual here, that she's met along the way. And I think the main point of the book, and you will hear this, is that it's really driven home for her and brought into focus the fact that for any society to function, to function healthily and to function at all, we need gender equality. Um, she says that no other single change can do more to improve the state of the world. So the main message really is that it's for all of us, not just philanthropy, not just business, and certainly not just women, to force that change. And I should say that the book is not just about women. Of course, it's about anyone whose society might deem to be an outsider. This week, particularly, we might all be looking at the news, feeling a bit despairing, thinking that we're going backwards rather than forwards. But I feel that if anyone can uh, restore a sense of optimism, it's certainly, it's certainly you. So thank you so much again for joining us, and thank you all for being here. I should say that um, we asked you, as you probably know, to submit your questions um, in advance, and I will weave those into my questions this evening. I, I promise I will say when they're yours. I won't try and pass them off as my own. <laughs> um, so thank you for coming.
0: Thanks for doing this tonight, and thanks, everyone, for being here. This is great to see such a great audience.
2: So the first question I have for you is this title of your book, The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. Where did it come from? And and tell us a little bit about the meaning of the title.
0: Yeah, so I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Um, I'm one of four children. And my dad was an aerospace engineer. And he worked on the first Apollo launch. And so those Apollo launches, I saw many of them over the years, but They were so central in our lives when I was a kid and it was the one night uh, that my sister and I got to stay up late and put our jammies on and my parents would drive us across town to another engineer's house and we would sit in front of that black and white TV and the thrill of watching that rocket launch and I had, even as a little girl, I had some sense of how hard it was for those engineers to pull off. Because my dad would talk about it so often. He was so excited in our house. And I would meet the other engineers, males and females, at his company picnics. And so that moment where, you know, the engines are ignited and, and the ground is shaking and it's rumbling. And then finally the rocket lifts off to space was just such an exciting and thrilling moment. And so when I thought about the title of the book, I thought, you know, really, that is what we're trying to do for women. We're trying to move past the gravitational forces, the barriers that hold women back. Because if you can remove those barriers and help lift women up, they will lift up the world. And uh, that's how I came up with the title.
2: So you've been doing this for 20 years. You've been on your mission for 20 years, as I said. Why did you wait till now or why did you decide now was the moment to, to write it all down? To...
0: Well, I've been thinking about a book for a little while. And as you say, I've been really incredibly lucky to travel on behalf of the foundation for 20 years. And I have met so many women in the developing world. And I go in as a Western woman in a pair of khaki pants and a t-shirt is all they know that I'm there you know, to listen and learn about their lives and what the West might do to invest and help. And these women's stories over the years, they just, they, they feed me and they've eventually called my life to action in ways I never could have imagined 20, 15 years ago. And I thought, you know, if those women's stories called me to action, I want to write them down to, and also share a part of my journey in hopes that it might uh, cause others, inspire them to action.
2: And you've been touring with the book since April, I think. Mm -hmm. You've been everywhere from Oprah, David Letterman, and of
0: course, book tours.
2: How have you felt the reaction um, to it has been? And and what's the conversation that's been sort of built up around it?
0: Well, it's interesting because after the Me Too movement, um, I was also traveling the globe um, and had a number of stops literally right after the Me Too movement sort of started in the United States. And I was, first of all, surprised how swiftly it was moving around the planet and how excited people were whether you're in India or France or anywhere else places in you know Johannesburg and it's another impetus for me to do the book now because I felt like you know I lived through some of these times where we thought the window was open for equality but it shut again and to me this has blown the top off of it the me too movement And so I want to keep that conversation alive with this book because I think there's so many things we need to do. Um, So one of the things that's been surprising to me, though, that I would not have guessed, having done book tour, is the chapter on unpaid labor is the one that seems to resonate the most for women, but also for men. I have had so many men come up to me and say, I just never really thought about the distribution of tasks at home. And we never really had that conversation in my home. I just sort of assumed my wife was gonna do these things or she assumed it. And that's what, why I wrote that chapter, and I was even pretty personal about my own home, is because I think we, we go into our partnerships often and we just sort of assume, the woman and the man both, just sort of assume she's going to take these tasks on in the household. And if we don't stop and really look at that and look at it as work, because it is work, our economies are built on the back of this unpaid labor. And if we don't look at it, then we make mistakes, So here in the UK, women do a hundred more minutes of unpaid labor every single day than a man does. A hundred minutes. And if you average it out around the globe, it is seven years of a woman's life. Now, I don't know about you, Hannah, but I know (laughs) what I could do is seven years of my life. I might go back and get a PhD or a couple of them. Um, You know, and and so that unpaid work, if we don't look at it and redistribute it, it keeps women from focusing on their own health or doing something productive in the workforce. And some of the labor at home, we have to be honest, are things we want to do, caring for our loved ones, reading to our kids at night when they're little. But some of it is just chores, filling lunch boxes and doing the laundry and doing the dishes. And so we have to look at that and decide who's really going to do what. And I don't think I really thought about it terribly on my own until I saw all the unpaid labor being done in the developing world by women, carrying water, chopping wood, cooking in the cooking hut for six hours, that I came home and started to realize how much of it we do in my own country in the United States. It's, again, it's 90 minutes more a woman does every single day than her husband in her home.
2: Now you've brought that chapter up, I I will ask you, you write very honestly and very openly in that particular chapter. And you say you found that quite hard to do. Why did you decide to be so honest about what goes on in your own home? And what lesson were you trying to sort of teach people from that? Because,
0: so I want people to relate to me. I think sometimes they think, well, you could farm every single task out in your home. I suppose I could, but I wouldn't be raising my kids with the values that I want them or that Bill and I want them to have. So one of the things we do every single night after dinner with the kids is um, we do the dishes. All five of us do the dishes. And... um, You know, and so that was actually going pretty well. Everybody expected to participate, clean up the table, do the dishes. But I realized at night, one night, gosh, I'm spending another like good 15, 20 minutes downstairs when Bill would sort of wander back to his computer upstairs and do I don't know what. And the kids would wander off to do their homework or, you know, text a friend. And I'm thinking, why am I still down here doing the last minute things? So I'm not always very eloquent in my home, they will tell you, but um, I got pretty frustrated one night. I finally just said, nobody leaves the kitchen until mom leaves the kitchen. And guess what? Those last minute tasks, instead of taking 15 or 20 minutes, they get done at about three minutes or five minutes and everybody goes upstairs at the same time. And, um, but I think it's important to say that, to recognize the actual work for what it is. It is work. Just because economists, didn't choose to call it work. They said they could only measure productive labor. Well, when that productive labor got set as a measurement, it was males who were deciding what was productive labor. But I think there's a lot of productive things that happen in our home.
2: And there's a particular story about when you were deciding a school for your child.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so our oldest daughter, Jen, she's 23 now, but when she was about four... Bill and I had to decide on an elementary school. We looked at a lot of them. We absolutely agreed on this one school. And once she started, she was going to go there all the way through middle school. We both agreed on the school. But as we got close to signing her up, I was like, ugh, I could see the years ahead, you know, in the minivan. And it was not close to our house. It was a good 40, 45 minutes away round trip. And so I said to Bill, let's just put her in the neighborhood preschool for a while. And then we'll move her when she gets further in elementary school. And he felt very strongly that she'd begin at the school at the beginning. And again, I was pretty frustrated. And then he, he asked a question, but then he answered it immediately himself. He said, um, what can I do to help? And then he turned around right after that. and He said, you know, I could drive a few days a week. And I, at first, I wasn't sure he was serious. I had to look at him and say, are you serious? Because for him, it meant an hour round trip, because he would drop her at school and then go back to Microsoft. And inadvertently, two things happened. One is, he learned that he so valued the time in the car with her, and she valued it, that he kept it up with our other two children after they were born. And about three weeks into the school year, uh, some women kind of sidled up to me in the classroom, and they said, did you notice anything in the classroom? And I said, yeah, it seems like there are more dads dropping off. And they said, by gosh, we went home and said to our husbands, if Bill Gates can drive, so can you. (laughs) you. So inadvertently, by asking for what I needed in my household and Bill being able to step up and responded, we ended up role modeling something we didn't expect. But that's why those conversations in our own homes are so important. You know, we have to look at quality in our homes, in our communities, and our workforce. And I think often one of the places we need to start is in our homes.
2: You say in the book that um, I think it was around 23 years ago you were first asked if you were a feminist and you didn't quite know what to say to that. Now you say you're an ardent feminist. What changed and what is a feminist to you?
0: Yes. So the first time someone asked me about 23 years ago was actually a Catholic nun. Uh, She was running an all-girls school in Seattle. She asked me to do a speech and she asked me if it would be okay to ask me on stage if I was a feminist. And I had to really think about it, and I said, I'm, uh, I'm not ready to answer that question, because I didn't feel that I was. And it took me quite a while with wrestling with the term, and then all the years of travel to realize I'm an ardent feminist, Because I think we have to take the definition, take hold of it for ourselves. There are some things that got attached to feminism, the first wave of feminism, where they got labeled angry feminists by the side that didn't like them. And yet, sometimes it takes anger to break through, to break through hard issues. What I know now to be true is that, to me, feminism means that when woman has her full voice... And her full decision-making authority in everywhere that she lives, her home, her community, and her workforce, that is the definition of feminism. And if that's the, that is my definition, and I can more than embrace that. And I think that when a woman has her voice and her full decision-making authority, what I know to be true, both from seeing it in the developing world and my own country and from the statistics, is she empowers everybody around her. And yet, there are so many barriers that hold women back in both direct and indirect ways from having their full voice or decision-making authority.
2: I want to come back to um, developed countries in a moment, but you obviously spend a lot of time working in developing countries, and I think you started your mission with family planning and contraception. You say contraceptives are the greatest, life-saving, poverty-ending, women-empowering innovation ever created. Is that still your number one priority? Why is contraception so important when it comes to the barriers between men and women?
0: Yeah, so we originally started in vaccines. We did a little bit of family planning or contraceptive work in the beginning. But what we really came to do deeply at the beginning of the foundation's work were vaccines because they save so many children's lives. And when we got into that work, we realized there used to be a vaccination system that worked worldwide, but it had crumbled. And so it was taking 25 years from when a vaccine would come out, say, in the UK or in the US, to make it to various countries in Africa or even India or Bangladesh. And even when it got there, it didn't have the right strains for for those strains of the disease they had in those countries. And so we kept thinking, a 25-year lag, are you kidding? Like, there has to be something we can do. So we got deeply involved in the vaccine work, and um, I would be out in villages or in health clinics talking to women standing in line um, about vaccines for their kids and they would tell me the great lengths they would go to get their children vaccinated because they knew it saved lives but if I stayed long enough and really sat with the women and talked with them and let them turn the conversation back to me what they wanted to talk about were contraceptives and they kept saying to me but what about my shot Why Why is it I used to come to this health clinic where I get my kids vaccines and I can't get my shot anymore? And the number one type of contraceptive used in most countries in Africa is something called Deproprevera. It's a shot, actually a very painful shot. You get intramuscularly and a woman gets it uh, once a quarter. And so she has to walk a long distance and get it. And as I started to hear this, this sort of rallying call all over the world, I was shocked how much women knew about contraceptives and how much they were asking me for them in country after country, village after village, you know, slum after slum. And so I got, that, that just can't be. And so when I came back and read the global data... Again, there's a problem with data and statistics we can get into around women's issues. We don't fund them. But anyway, the global statistics said, well, contraceptives are stocked in. Well, what was stocked in were condoms because of all the AIDS work that had been done, which was great, but women will tell you over and over again they cannot negotiate a condom even in the context of their marriage because they would be suggesting that either their husband had been unfaithful and, and was, might bring AIDS into the home, or that they had been unfaithful and might have HIV AIDS. And so they, they were going these great lengths to walk and get these shots because it was a covert way of getting contraceptives, and they knew it was life-saving for their children. So in 2012, after hearing this and learning so, so much and learning about it, I finally decided that we would step up and it was actually the UK government that came and said, will you host an enormous global summit and help us raise the money um, around the world to get this back on the global health agenda? And I kept kind of looking for the other advocate who would do it. I was willing to put money and funding in, but I kept trying to look for the global advocate who could do it. And then I finally realized somebody's gotta do it and I guess it's gotta be me.
2: You had quite a a struggle in many ways deciding that it was going to be you because, of course, you're a very strong Catholic, and the Catholic Church is very opposed to contraceptives. So how did you reconcile that, and did did you question your faith because of that?
0: I wrestled with my faith for probably two years um, to really square that circle and I couldn't. I mean at the end of the day I had met so many moms and dads who had lost babies. I mean you go into a village and you sit with a group of women on a mat and there might be you know three dozen or more women there um, to talk with and if you ask them do any of you know someone who's died in childbirth? almost all the hands go up. I mean, they know death because they're having babies too soon and too often and their bodies aren't ready for it. Or they will say to you, it's not fair to the children I have for me to bring another in the world. I can't hardly feed these. And so I kept thinking, okay, if, if my faith tells me we're supposed to not have children die or mothers die needlessly, and yet we're not delivering what they're asking for, You know, you have to say, where does that rule come from? And at the end of the day, that is a man made rule. And yet, it's a life saving tool. And I also have this total belief in social justice. I got that from these amazing Ursuline nuns that I uh, was educated by in high school. And, you know, they sent us out in the community to work, and they taught us that one person can make the difference in the life of somebody else. I worked, you know, in the local school, local hospital, Dallas County Courthouse. And so, Finally, I just thought, you know, I finally came around to the fact that, you know, I use these tools. And when I started to think, how will I counsel my own three children when they get older, my two daughters and my son, I knew I would counsel them to use contraceptives. So if I believe and use the tool, I have to be willing to speak out on it. Um, so, I eventually told my parents that 's what I was going to do. They fully supported me because they 're very Catholic, um, and you know everybody around me that was in the Catholic community, and I decided it was just the right thing to do for women around the world.
2: One of the audience questions is about that struggle and and whether you've seen it, whether it's happened to you anywhere else. She says, um, you've talked in other interviews about this two-year battle you faced with yourself in the decision to make contraceptives a priority and a platform for the charity. Have you faced a similar battle, initiating other platforms to raise attention to and funding, and and why?
0: Well, I describe in the book that after we'd led this big family planning summit in the UK, I think it was July of of, uh, 2012, I was, you know, I was first of all, exhausted, and I felt like, oh my gosh, we have finally raised money, we've raised $2.6 billion on behalf of this cause, we've got it back on the global health agenda, despite the various controversies, and particularly lots of controversy in my country. Um, and so I kind of thought, okay, we've done our job, like I'll keep pushing, you know, I knew there was lots of work ahead on family planning, we had to build a data system, we had to get the supplies out, we would have to fundraise again, I knew in five years. But I thought, okay, this is the issue. But as I describe in the book, I went to a dinner that night with a group of women, um, almost all from the UK, very influential women doing work in their various sectors in the field. And they basically opened my eyes and they said, don't you see what you've done? And I said, yeah, Like this was supposed to be a celebratory dinner, we're all having a glass of wine. I'm thinking, we, we raised this money, we've got on the global health agenda. And they said, no, you've just begun. There is so much more that has to be done on behalf of women. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I am not signing up for that. That is just, you know, I know how big that agenda is. And I knew how hard it would be to drive the agenda. Um, But as time passed, I realized, no, there are so many more things we need to do. And, yes, at times it takes courage. Um, And at times, you know, stepping out and saying this is the right thing to do. You know, or to go into a meeting, I go into meetings in the UN where nobody used to talk about women, much less girls in the UN and investing in them. And now I stand up in front of rooms of mostly men and say, this is what we need to do. This is the agenda of the future. And my job is to get men and women on board with that. And I've gotten more confident doing that over time. But it takes a while.
2: I mean, one of the things that you've gone in and talked about is child marriage. That also is a chapter in the book. Can you tell us some of them? I mean it's the heartbreaking stories we can't go into all of them now but some of the stories about child marriage and why that is such a again another huge barrier in the developing world
0: yes that is a huge barrier and there are many advocates who lead that and let me just be clear everything i'm talking about tonight every single issue whether it's vaccines whether it's women's issues children's issues girls issues these anything the foundation does is in partnership with somebody else we do nothing alone we could not begin to achieve these goals Um, So I had met Mabel Van Lorange over many years. Uh, She's from the Netherlands, and she has been leading an effort on child marriage with many partners in the field. And as I would come upon the issue out in the field, um, I wanted to learn more about it. And so I met, one of the stories I tell in the book is I went to Ethiopia, and I met with a group of young girls. Um, First, I met with a group of girls who um, had been pulled out of school and were already in marriage. And then another group of girls who were still in school but knew they were going to be married off. And these girls, they are so young. And talk about not having your voice. I mean, it just, it broke my heart. I mean, some of them are nine. Some of them are 11. Some of them are 12. And they will tell you, I want to stay in school. I'm doing everything I can to stay in school. But their families would often you know, trick them. They would think they were going out to get the water, which is what most young girls do. You're assigned that task usually by your parents in the developing world. They'd go off to get water, and they'd say, we need water, fresh water, go to the water well to get it, because we're going to host a party today. And they would come back and find out it was their own wedding. And when a girl is married off young, she is often the property, essentially, of the other family. And you want to talk about losing your voice no chance for education. And then you basically are in a destitute situation, a life of slavery. And many of these girls are, you know, they marry somebody who's, of course, not of their village. And so they may travel a long distance and not even know how to get back to their home and have no contact. That is just sad. But you're trying it in these places, essentially, to change culture
2: and tradition. One of the things you seem to wrestle with a bit in the book, and you bring up Hans Rosling, who mm. I've also been um, very lucky enough to, to meet, the statistician, he said to you, was warning you, that American billionaires giving away money will mess everything up. Mm. When you're helping in these areas, how do you try and make sure that that isn't the case? What was he talking about? And
0: yeah, so he was really concerned, and rightfully so, and I think we all have to watch for this all the time, is you can't just take a Western idea into a community and decide we're going to change this, we want to fix this. You know, you have to try and take your Western hat off and say, if I was living in this community and somebody was bringing in a new idea or a new piece of technology, and by technology I mean even a vaccine what would I have to know or, or want or need to understand before I would listen to that person? Well, often, well, first of all, if somebody comes in with their own point of view and a judgmental point of view, you're not gonna get anywhere. And second of all, it takes the people around you to educate you with the right information. So what we have learned early on, I was lucky enough that President Jimmy Carter came to the foundation very early. And I said to him, President Carter, he had been working in global health then for many, many years after his presidency and doing very effective work. And I said, President Carter, what is it we should know that took you a while to learn that hopefully we wouldn't have to relearn? And he said, you know, Melinda, you have to go into any community whenever you're going into community to bring knowledge or new information or trying to help change society the community has to want what the information you're bringing in and they have to own it and they have to see it as theirs and if you don't do that you might get a little bit of change for a while while you're there but as soon as you leave they're going to go back to what they were doing before because it's not that they really believe you they might be incentive to do what you want And so we work with partners who've been working on the ground in these communities, often for 30 or 40 years. And the partners often have people who are from the community working there. And so they have to start conversations and build trust and knowledge and hear what's interesting to the people in the local community in the village, work on those things first and then start to bring new knowledge and see if the villagers want to take that up.
2: Do you think that the conversation then and that is more important than the science and the technology?
0: No, I don't think it's one or the other. I think that you absolutely have to have new technology. I mean, why do we not face polio in the United Kingdom or the United States? Why have we essentially eradicated smallpox in our countries? Because of vaccines. You know, I have an aunt. I write about her in the book. I'm very close to her. She is still paralyzed from polio. My mom was ostracized. No one would play with her because once her sister got polio... They didn't know how it was spread and they thought maybe my mom had it. So we forget the difference these vaccines make, but it's that science that moves the world forward but the way you bring it into a community and get them used to the idea has to be done with a lot of trust and a lot of listening and a lot of cultural context. Now, when you go to Africa, people are asking us for vaccines or contraceptives because they see and know the difference it makes. But without that technology, I don't care how much conversation you have, but if you don't have a good vaccine for... Pick your favorite disease, smallpox. It's going to likely break out in that community, and children are going to die. No amount of conversation is going to change that. So you have to mirror together the best science and the latest science and thinking. Bill and I are absolute believers in innovation, but with the right way of doing what we call delivery. And if a parent doesn't trust you, they're not going to accept a vaccine in their body or their children's body, and for good reason. I mean, we're all concerned about what we put in our bodies and our health. So it has to be done. You have to put both together, the great science and the great trusting relationship to get people to trust and to bring accept new knowledge and then to carry it forward.
2: One of the things um, that really struck me is the technology obviously can be so simple and the difference between having a phone, Mm -hmm. the story back to child marriage of the girl who had the app on her phone which saved her from a child marriage. Tell us about that.
0: Yes, she was in India, and um, she was going to be married off. Um, and quite, quite often, the family is marrying the girl off because, one, they sometimes don't have the assets to feed all the children they have, um, and two, they think they're protecting the family's honor by making sure that she's married and married young so she's not in a violent situation or she's not promiscuous. Um, but anyway, this girl did not want to be married, but her parents had arranged for a marriage, and she was lucky enough to have access to this app on her phone in India where she could push a button and a and notice went out, emergency notice went out to some trusted sources, and a group came in and pulled her out of that situation and saved her. Now, that is an amazing first start because she wasn't um, then married off, but think about it. She's from that family, and she's from that community that believes in marrying girls young. So without the knowledge of teaching the villagers how and incentivizing them for their, how their families will be better off if they don't marry their girls young, you're not gonna get the cultural change. And so you both have to have great policy at the top, you have to have ways of enforcing it, and you have to have community change so communities start to accept we just shouldn't marry our girls off. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, if. only in theaters, May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news,
2: I'm going to bring in one of the audience questions here because you were speaking about the decision and the difficulty someone else was asking about how to decide where to to put, where to to dedicate. Mm. And this question is, um, with so many issues that need to be addressed, how did you decide which areas to focus on from the world's
0: most pressing problems? Well, initially, you know, initially we took a very economic approach. I mean, we want to make sure that every, you know, $100, $100, 100 pounds, if we, if we go and ask the British government to put down 100 pounds of taxpayer dollar, we want to know that money is being spent well. And so we initially looked at what is the, where does the greatest death happen in the world for children and for adults And disabilities for adults that if you get several bouts of malaria, you then don't go, you miss, you know, many weeks or months of work in the developing world. So we looked at the biggest death for children and death for adult and disability for adults. And then we started to say, well, where could um, a philanthropic organization make the most change in that? And what are the levers? Are there levers for change? So we first worked on childhood diseases and adult diseases, which takes you very quickly to vaccines and fixing the vaccine system, coming out with new vaccines. Um, The two biggest killers of children are diarrhea and pneumonia in the developing world. Those are needless deaths and vaccines will save many of those children and actually are now. Um, So we started with innovations in health, We started to work then on delivery, how do you deliver those in the ways that I talked about earlier. And over time we have come deeply to this women and girls work because we realize that if you make an assumption about a new tool, a new piece of innovation, getting out equally into the hands of men and women in the developing world, that's a false assumption. And you have to do specific programming to reach women because quite often the system doesn't reach them. And yet it's the women and their husbands, who will tell you over and over again, it's my wife's job to feed the kids and to look after their health. And then it's our job to make sure we have the fees for school. And so we have to do specific programming to help women. Um, But we are basically, our goal is to try and help people lift themselves out of poverty. And we look for the greatest levers of change that we can help create with our partners to make that happen.
2: You say in the book, the world's richest countries don't care about the poorest, and I'm sure you know that here there's often a debate about the 7% and people who don't think that we should be giving that away. What, what, and I have an inkling I might know the answer, um, is is your answer to them and to those complaints? I think people
0: do care. I think you have evidence of it in your own country with Red Nose Day. I mean, look how generous people are on Red Nose Day. Look at what happens when there's an emergency situation and it's almost, it's obvious that money will help, right? People step up and give. And so I think sometimes though you get this backlash from a small group that says we shouldn't do that or we should care more about our own or... For good reason, people ask and they should ask, is this aid being effective? That is a fabulous question because we do need to measure aid and know that every hundred pounds that's put up of UK taxpayers' money is well spent. But what, so I think sometimes you get pushback from this small group of loud voices, and sometimes it's quite honestly driven by the press. And what I know to be true is that when you make investments on behalf of others in the developing world, when you make these foreign aid investments, it's not forever. South Korea is a perfect model. Lots of foreign aid went in. They grew from low to middle to high income. They now give aid because they see the difference it makes. Um, But it's also if we want peace and prosperity in the world, people have to have a good functioning health system. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't mean you have to have big gleaming hospitals all over, but it means you have to have a functioning health system. And that often means, you know, a health clinic that's maybe three quarters the size of this stage. That's the first place a mom and dad goes. And so you have to make sure people have good health where they are because then their kids can go on to get a good education and then they can go on to create prosperity in their own society. And when you do that, people by and large want to stay where they are. If their country and their community is prosperous, they want to stay with the people that they know, and they want to be able to lift up their families. But conversely, if they can't, then they will do the horrific thing of uprooting their family and ending up on the high sea in a high-risk situation in the Mediterranean. So if we want peace and stability in the world, we have to invest in low-income countries and help them get on their way to being middle-income countries because that is their goal ultimately for themselves.
2: When you look around your own country, I know you write quite openly in the book that you'll have great frustrations with the U.S. administration. I, obviously, your main point of the book is about overcoming the need to create outsiders, and that's the greatest challenge as human beings. I don't want to dwell too much on... Trump but how do you how exasperating is it for you how much despair do you feel trying to do all these things across the world when you have a president who's telling african-american women to go back to where they came from or do you think there's a sense that there's a spur behind all of that and people are galvanized more than they were because against
0: it well I think we have to understand that what Trump wants us to do is focus on Trump I mean, at the end of the day, that's what he's doing. Every single day, he's creating some sort of outrageous controversy, or he's trying to, right? But what I know to be true is, luckily, in the United States, the administration proposes a budget, but Congress disposes the money. Now, so this administration chose to zero out—the proposed budget was to zero out the accounts that had to do with women or women's reproductive rights— But Congress, in their wisdom, held up the funding because they know the difference that that makes. So what it means is, yes, the job is harder when we go to Washington, D.C. Now, absolutely, for Bill and me and all of our partners, but... There is still wisdom on the Hill, and what we have to do, on Capitol Hill, what we have to do is make sure we find this coalition of the willing. And it is harder, though, because Americans are more polarized, just as you're seeing more polarization in many countries. But you have to find the places where we are the same, and I do think people care about other human beings. And we witness it all the time in an emergency, you know, disaster relief when there's a catastrophe. People open their pocketbooks and they give money. So we have to stop focusing on him because that's what he'd like us to do and focus on what's actually possible and then make a decision that we're going to keep focusing on that and doing the actual work. So I haven't changed what I'm doing. Bill hasn't changed what he's doing. Yes, we call on different people, fewer people in the administration. Believe me, we still made the rounds in the administration, um, but luckily the people making many of those decisions are on Capitol Hill.
2: I want to um, come on to the workplace where you spoke about at the beginning, and obviously mm. we've already talked about um, inequality in the home, that um, this is obviously a huge problem in developed countries in the workplace. You experienced it yourself at the beginning of your career. Um, tell us a little bit about that and what you learned from those experiences you had about perhaps how we should aspire to be as women in the workplace.
0: Yeah, so I, I by and large had a fabulous career at Microsoft. I was there nine years. I'm a computer science graduate, undergraduate, uh, but have business degree. So there were not very many technical women at Microsoft at the time. I had a fabulous career inside the company. I learned a lot. It was very hard charging. Outside, when I would go in industry, I would see a lot of bias against women. But I will say this, inside the company, you know, we were moving fast, we were aggressive, the company was aggressive, and I will say, after I had been there a, a little less than two years, I thought I might leave. Um, because I really enjoyed the products, I enjoyed building products, I knew we were changing the world, we were. We were creating things that didn't exist. But I didn't really like that abrasive culture, and um, we would go into meetings, and you kind of fought your point tooth and nail every single time. It kind of felt like the Boys' Debating Club, and I learned to be great at the Boys' Debating Club. But when I would be off at the grocery store, you know, or interacting with somebody in the community, I didn't like who I was becoming. And so I thought, you know, I'm probably gonna leave. That's okay, I knew I could get another great job. You know, that would've been fine. Um, But I thought, well, I'll try just before I leave, I'll try being myself. And I was pretty sure it would fail. I was quite sure it was going to fail. and i will just fall flat on my face. And I actually sort of warned my parents that I was probably going to leave the company. And, and anyway, um, I tried being myself and it worked. And what I started to realize was that, because I was managing large teams by then, people would say, how did you get that amazing developer off of that other product to come work for you in the consumer division? And I would say, well, maybe he just wanted to work in an environment that was supportive and not abrasive." And I embraced teams. I believe that a really great team and getting the best out of people's talents as a team, you can create great things in the world. And we had each other's backs. And so I learned from that to just be yourself and let people take it or leave it. If they don't like it, that's okay too. But I know that if we can be our full selves at work, people are more fulfilled and more likely to stay in the place that they're working if they can bring their whole self to work. So
2: obviously women often think that they should emulate men and male culture. It happens today a lot. And your message is absolutely that that they should bring themselves and that can be the change.
0: Yes, but it often takes a group of women or it takes a man to stand up for a woman. So if you're sitting in a meeting and a man re-explains a woman's point, it really should be another man that says, hey, not okay, she already just said that, right? Or if a man interrupts a woman... Somebody should stop the meeting. I'm, I'm lucky enough now, you know, at the foundation, I sit at the head of the table, so when I see that happening, I'll say, well, wait, it looked like that person, she wanted to get her pointed, right? And so we have to look at all these small behaviors that we do, and it's not just men, it's women too, but we have this norm because in pretty much every industry, you can look up and young men can see, you know, three dozen different archetypes of male role models. And they can say, I don't want to be like those 20, but, you know, those other 16 are pretty good guys. I want to be in that industry and be that type of person. A woman looks up, a young girl or a young woman, and she doesn't see very many archetypes of women and particularly of women leaders and particularly in the past, you'd get one who made it in an industry or two and they often had to assimilate and be like a man to get where they were. Instead of saying, hey, what is it we need to change about our culture, all of us, so that women and men can show up as who they are. So I applaud when a man says he's leaving work to go to his kid's soccer game. I'm like, great, I think that's a great thing. When a woman leaves the workforce at five o'clock to go to a kid's soccer game, fabulous. It has to be okay for us if we have kids to both be parents and work hard and be in the workforce. One of the things you talk about,
2: though, is that you know it's a vicious circle because of the culture. Women are often have riddled with more self-doubt than men, and call themselves perfectionists. There's a sort of fear they have to wait till they're absolutely perfect to go for anything. How do they overcome that?
0: I had to look at that in myself a lot because I, I definitely grew up uh, thinking I had to be perfect to achieve certain goals. And I think we all have to look at that and say, no, 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 it's okay not to be perfect. And though we have to change the workforce and the culture because the workforce is saying to women all the time, you're not going to get there unless you're perfect, unless you do it, uh, you know, unless you act a certain way, you're expected to look good and be able to present... And not look too bossy or look too aggressive. Who can achieve all of that? Are you kidding? I met with, uh, I had several meetings today where the women came in, um, I guess in the UK you call them trainers. And I was like, why am I not smart enough to do that? Like, I should just do that more, right? I mean, we have to, how we dress and how we act, you know, why is it that culture is always telling us we have to be a certain way no we can be any way that we want to be and we should be free to do that so I think we have to look at it in ourselves our own perfectionism and doubt I think women create doubt for other women at times I think men create some of that doubt but we have to look at it and bring that down for everybody
2: before we end on a more positive note again about the solutions perhaps you can there are some very depressing statistics, and you say gender discrimination is is in law across the world. Tell us a little bit about the slightly depressing scene before we work out how we can go away and do something about it. (laughs)
0: Well, I think, you know, without going through all of them, I think we have to look at every place in society where women can't have their full voice or their full decision-making authority. I'll give you an example in the United States. We are the only industrialized country in the world, the only, that doesn't have A paid family medical leave uh, policy at the federal level. The only country. And think about what that means for women. You know, more than 50% of women in the United States work now, and yet they're doing the second shift. They're doing the unpaid labor at home, and they're trying to work. That is an impossible task. So in the U.S., one of the big things we have to do, first of all, is look at how do we get paid family medical leave. The federal game is too hard right now, so we're bringing it to the states. The states are starting to roll it out. But only 14% of our workforce, U.S. workforce, has paid family medical leave. So that's a huge issue in my country. In other countries, some of the issues are child marriage. We have to look at, you know, how is it that we get more women to run for politics? Are they being funded? Do they have a chance of running? Do they think they can run? How do we help women with their self-confidence? We know having women at the head of political institutions makes an enormous difference. So I sort of look at four industries in the developed world. I look at finance, politics, the media, because they tell our stories about ourselves, and I look at tech. And we are not far enough in any of those industries. And we need to push on all of that because I, I know equality can't wait and the world's going to be better if we get it.
2: Often the argument is that it's biology or it's, uh, you know, nature and not nurture. You said it's unimaginable to me how flawed that logic is and yet how widely believed opportunities have to be equal before you can know if abilities is equal and opportunities have never been equal.
0: Right, until the opportunities are equal, we don't get to run that experiment. So just saying it's biology doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, even in the tech industry, we sort of say, oh, well, women aren't as interested in tech. No. Part of the reason women aren't interested in tech is it it turned a certain direction and they're not interested in having jobs where they go in and they're not welcomed in the industry or where uh, it's too abrasive for them. You know, we marketed computers in the United States. When personal computers first came out, at first they were neutral. I played the Atari games, the Pong games, everything that were completely non-genderized. But then all of a sudden the IBM PC came out and within a year they started marketing it as a boy's toy. So boys started playing with the home. They started getting really good at coding. So girls weren't offered this computer. I was in my home. I was really, really lucky. My dad actually got my sister and I one. I loved programming. It was fabulous. But then the games became very male-dominated and became shoot-'em-up games. So many, many things happened that then drove women out of the industry. So in my country, where women were on the way up in technology, computer science degrees when I was in college, late 1980s, we were on the rise, just like medicine and law. Medicine and law now in my country, 50% of graduates are women. Same with law, in fact, slightly more. So, we weren't sure women could make it, or were they interested in medicine? Were they interested in law? Turns out they are. Well, in technology, we went up, and then unlike medicine law, we came down because of what happened and the way that was marketed. We need to bring that number back up because our future, in my opinion, is being influenced massively by tech. I think that's a good thing, but if you don't have women with a seat at the table or you don't have minorities with a seat at the table, we are baking bias into our systems, systems that have profound effects on our legal system, our health. Um, So we have got to get women back into tech, and we have to work on that. But it's not that women aren't interested. We made it unwelcoming inadvertently.
2: I said at the beginning that the message was we can all individually, not just you doing great work and business but when people walk away from the room obviously there's a huge amount but what are your main bits of advice people to go away and, and be a force for change themselves and it's the how-to academy so yeah. to take away.
0: I would say start in your home. Do you feel like you have a quality in your home? And if not, speak up about it. Do you feel like even what you're telling if you have a son or a daughter, are you you giving them the same messages? I wasn't in my own home. I had to look at my own bias of what I was doing in my home. Um, So look in your home, look in your community. Are there things you can do to lift up another girl or a woman in your community, whether you're a, a woman or a man? What can you do to mentor somebody? What can you do to sponsor somebody for that very first job in the workforce? That first job makes an enormous difference. Um, what can you do if you work in the workforce already? What can you do in your workplace? Can you demand transparent pay? Do you know whether men and women are paid equally for a, a given piece of work? Does your company have a great paid family medical leave policy? you know are women Promoted at the same rate that men are promoted? Can you help sponsor a woman for a job? Tell her you are ready for that job. We know when a good job opens, men all think they're qualified. They all throw their name in the ring, whether they have the qualities or not. There's good research around this. Whereas women wait until they feel like they have 100% of the qualities, whereas a man jumps in when he has 60%. So, how do we help women know they actually are ready for that promotion and to put their name in the ring or go to another manager and say, this woman over here, let's mentor her because she will be ready for that job in a year. Those are all things we can do. And if you do any of those things in your home, your workplace, your community, or your workplace, I'm telling you, it makes a difference.
2: I'm just going to finish with a couple of the audience questions um, someone asked what impacts do you hope that you and the foundation will have made 15 to 20 years from now and they've said please be as specific as you can <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay I'll, I'll just be incredibly specific so we and many many partners around the world including amazing investments by DFID the UK government of UK taxpayer dollars as a world since 1990 we have cut childhood deaths in half in half. So that means <laughs> That means every single year 5 million more children are alive who wouldn't have been alive. And when a mom or a dad in a low or middle income country knows that two of their children will survive till adulthood, they actually bring down naturally the size of their family because they want to make sure a couple of their kids survive. So a very specific goal we have is to cut that childhood death rate again yet in half in the next 15 years. And it can be done. It's not going to be easy, but it can be done.
2: And the other question was advice for people who want to get into impact investment.
0: Well, I list, in the back of my book, I list a whole bunch of organizations um, that you can invest in And what I want people to know in the room is think about your own assets. You have your time and your energy. You have your intellect and know-how. And you probably have some resource. And any one of those three are worth spending on somebody else to make the world better. And you can do it in any combination you choose. One, two, or all three. And I will tell you, it makes an absolute difference on someone else's life. And you might find along the way, a little bit like Bill and me, it also gives great meaning and fulfillment to your own life. So I hope everybody thinks about it, how they can do something for someone else.
2: That feels like a good place um, to end. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, Thank you so much.
1: This week's podcast starred Melinda Gates and Hannah McInnes. For more just like it, visit us at howtoacademy.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We also make films and books and, of course, have a rolling programme of live talks, conferences and festivals, all of which you can find on our website. Thanks for listening.